At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good evening and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, October 23rd, 2023 edition of Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein and we are excited this hour for your questions. And when I say we, I mean myself and Luke Guerrero. He is back with us. Thanks for being here, Luke. Thank you for having me. And today, our main goal is to really usher you through these interesting times, these trying times, these different times when this is a, a new era of higher inflation, uh, which means different market dynamics. And that's why I love our main focus point today, because it really hits on the dynamics that are shifting, that are changing the way uh, investors allocate or should allocate their portfolio. We're going to talk about the 60-40 portfolio and how that can balance out with maybe other assets in a higher inflationary environment. So that's our main focus point today. But we're going to run down some show topics as well. We're going to talk about market performance, but right after we answer our first listener question now. Hi, Steve and Justin. I've owned this bond fund in my SEP IRA for several years now, and I just would like to get your guys' opinion on it. The symbol is F-A-D-M-X, Fidelity Strategic Income Fund. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right. This is Fidelity Strategic Income Fund. F-A-D-M-X is the symbol. And it is... I would call it an intermediate term, relatively short term, but the effective duration is four and a half, four and a half years, which is a little longer than I would like, but it's not super long. It's not a ton of duration risk here. The average credit rating is pretty high. It is kind of in that uh, triple B range, which is good. And if you look at the, my, and my biggest issue with this one is the fee. The fee is 68 basis points. Luke, do you think that's a bit too high for a bond fund? Personally, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's a little bit high. And especially in this environment, it's been performing pretty poorly, which means you're paying a lot of money right now for poor performance. Yeah, this is this is not performing very well. If you look at, as of late especially, uh, if you look at the performance last year, let's take a look and just this up. I clicked on the wrong tab. I clicked on portfolio. If you look back, let me get this loaded. Here you go. Uh, this year down 2.79% on the index. Uh, and this actually is up. So that it's outperformed this year. Last year did not. It was down about 11%. So 
you know, uh, the category was down nine, uh, 9.8. So it certainly underperformed that the category overall. So, um, you know, it's, I would say it's better than most, but I would rather go a little bit shorter in duration. That's my biggest issue here. It's better than the bond index, but I don't like the higher fees and I don't like that it's not quite short enough in duration for me. All right, let's go to Sid, North Carolina, looking at MLI, which is Mueller Industries. Hi, Justin. Good evening. Thanks for calling. And uh, Mueller Industries this is a name. It's been a high flyer, and it's starting to roll a little bit. Do you own it or looking to buy it? I have this in my radar since you maybe given in the one of the newsletter last year mm-hmm. in the September. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, somebody even asked a question, but you were looking for the right price. And I don't remember the exact analysis, but mm-hmm. it was in one of the newsletter in September 2022. Mm-hmm. And since then, mm-hmm. it is in my radar. The reason mm-hmm. I'm asking this question, because today, for some reason, the price fall almost 50%. Mm-hmm. And I want to recheck, is there... A, some good reason, bad reason, can we buy now if it's still a good company? So I would like to yeah. check your opinion on that. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, so it was the newsletter last September, and that was right around $30 per share. It ran all the way up to $45 per share as of basically the end of July. And it's kind of rolled over with the rest of the market. And for everyone else out there, Mueller Industry, they make copper tubing, fittings and faucets, alloy rods for the HVAC, refrigeration, and plumbing market. So you're kind of bread and butter industrial name. And the reason it's reversed is not only pressure from the market, but the expectations for earnings are coming down as well. Last quarter, revenues are down 22%, earnings down 15%. And you're getting kind of a reversion to the mean here uh, to some degree. Pre-pandemic, they only made 90 cents per share. And last year, they made $5.82 per share. This year, supposed to make $3.85. The technicals now, I would consider them broken. And look, the big worry for me is, do we go all the way back to $0.90 per share that they earned in 2019? Or do you think this is kind of a a new normal of maybe $3, $4 per share, and then maybe it's cheap? Yeah, to me, you know, one of the things that I see here that I like is their debt level. So their long-term debt to equity is 1.2%. Their net debt to total capital is negative 40%. So I think it's more in line with what you were saying before, which is just some mean reversion uh, given the dynamics of the market changing overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's the question is where is this cheap enough? I mean, uh, I think the it's certainly been hit hard, right? Going from 45 all the way down to 35 and change uh, at the close today. Let me give you a support level on the chart because you, this has had a big run since COVID. It, It benefited greatly from COVID and it certainly peaked out this summer and is, is mean reverting. Uh, the next major support though is right around $31 and call it 60 cents per share. So somewhere in that range would be the next major support level, huge support, would be around $27 per share. So those would be my targets to the downside. I probably wouldn't touch it until then. Uh, it's, it's technicals are just too broken near term. And it's a small cap, and small caps are being way down. Uh, now, like, you, like Luke said, 
good balance sheet. So that's a big factor. When you're looking at small caps in this environment, you absolutely have to pay attention to the balance sheet. That's one of the main reasons why small caps right now are underperforming dramatically is because a lot of them have stretched balance sheets. Their ability to refinance their debt uh, is becoming increasingly in question. And so if you can have a small cap that has a very strong business and a very strong balance sheet, they're not, ha- they're not having to worry too much about uh, the, the higher interest rates and, and higher cost of capital. So I still like the name, but need a little bit more correction and fi- to find support before I would jump in. All right. Now we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 45 minutes. And this is what we have planned. Our main focus point looks in the story set up by this headline. Risk of balance funds, lessons from the 60-40 portfolio stumble. Now, investing in the 60-40 rule has been a consistent strategy for years until 2022. So it's all about investing with the 60-40 rule in general and, and the risk balance funds have, because a lot of balance funds are allocated in the 60-40 portfolio and you know, what are the what are the risks here? Okay. And should you take your 60-40 portfolio and add precious metals, potentially? So we're going to look at that. Also, we have other topics on the docket. One is in regards to the exodus out of China and where companies are investing in new capacity for their manufacturing facilities. Also, Dr. Copper. Remember, everyone says uh, where, where copper goes, it's, it's kind of leading the economy. If it's rallying, that's a early sign that the economy is reaccelerating and vice versa. Well, there's a new shift and it's kind of forcing us to reassess our view that copper is a good barometer for the global economy. So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, the White House is looking to create 31 regional technology hubs and what that might mean for different cities, different industries, etc. So we're going to look at that. So that's what the, on the docket for us today. We also have some voice bank questions. One was in regards to MP materials and the other, Envent Electric. And we'll try to get to an iTunes review question as well. And my perspective concerns an abridged discussion of U.S. arms sales and transfers. So I think that'll be interesting considering what is happening around the world. Now let's talk a bit about the market today. Luke, we were down early. We rallied late morning and we still closed pretty down for most of the market, correct? Yeah, that is correct. The S&P 500 was down 17 basis points and the Russell 2000, which measures small caps, was down 85 basis points, which is something we've been seeing a lot lately. Yeah, which was kind of curious considering the 10-year was down 8.6 basis points. So down from nearly 5% at the close of last week, or call it 4. I think we're at 4.83. And now we're at 4.838 to the close today. So a pretty decent reversal to start this week in the yields. And the dollar was down as well, which uh, that is good. A weaker dollar typically loosens up financial conditions. And you're starting to see uh, the incremental uh, nature of the market pricing in more a more dovish Fed going forward. 
and that's what you're seeing in the markets today. Now, as we head to break, let me tell you about the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight Series. It is free and it's available now over on our YouTube channel. The newest episode focuses on real estate in the real estate sector. And today is much different than back in 08 when things got rough and homeowners were turning over their keys. There were a lot of forced sellers. Well, in the current environment, that is very different. It's not 08, there's not an abundance of forced sellers. And so a lot are locked in. And that's not the only problem within the uh, the housing market. And so we unpack that on the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight. And you can head over and check out that new episode right now on YouTube. Now, the phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. Get ready for the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar, Profit Amidst Chaos, Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge, but you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. How could the next recession differ from previous events? With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time. Go to investtalk.com and register now. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve or Justin, this is Michael from Alabama. I had a question about ticker symbol WMS, Advanced Drainage Systems. We spec out this product a lot where I work and just kind of wanted to know what your thoughts on the company were what would be a good entry point for them and just uh, the sector that it's in, kind of what that sector looks like moving forward. Appreciate what you guys do. All right, Luke, this is WMS, Advanced Drainage Systems, uh, a mid-cap, I would call it, $8.5 billion market cap. What are you seeing on profitability, balance sheet, multiples, et cetera? Yeah, in terms of its multiples, I mean, it's it's at an 8 price to book right now, which is really high for the sector and maybe not justified given its uh, EBIT margin is around 24%. That's actually pretty good. Its net debt to total capital is around 40%, which is pretty decent given given the sector that it's in. Generally speaking, I think the company looks pretty good to me, but maybe a little bit expensive given the run-up it's had over the past three months or so. Yeah, and it's been distributing uh, basically since mid-2021. The stock has gone sideways around here at 108. Earnings are expected to fall 6% this year, but go back 11, up 11% next year. Uh, you know, I would want to get this back in the low 80s. That's where I would feel comfortable with it. I like the balance sheet. I like the business. Uh, you know, it's in the construction infrastructure market. Um, and, you know, long term, uh, I think there's some tailwinds there. But I would pass on it for now until it gets back into the low 80s and find some support. Technicals are not good. All right. We're heading to a quick break. My phone lines are open waiting for you at 888-99-CHART.
Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and unbiased guidance. You've come to the right place. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, our main focus point looks in the story set up by this headline. Risk of balance funds, lessons from the 60-40 portfolio stumble. And last year, the 60-40 portfolio certainly had uh, a rough go at it. And a lot of people have been using the 60-40 rule to generally allocate their portfolios for a few decades now. And I think the big question now, Luke, is the the change in dynamics of inflation has that made those that are employing the 6040 portfolio should they be adding gold and silver or precious metals to augment this portfolio and which slice should it come from i think is another question yeah that's a good question well i think you have to take a step back and think about why the 6040 portfolio rule exists right So the point of it is to diversify your holdings in a way that you have assets that tend to be negatively correlated in the same portfolio, meaning when bonds do well, stocks probably aren't doing well and vice versa. And over the past 20 years, that's worked very well because we've been in a low inflationary environment. But now what we're seeing and something we've been talking about a lot is kind of this rise of maybe systematically higher inflation. Now, my main issue with the 60-40 rule or really any allocation rules is that they may or may not be flexible. The problem here with 60-40 portfolios is they decided to stick with it regardless of what the overall environment looked like. And because of that, they didn't perform well. Yeah. And there was a great study that was done in 2021. So a few years now. And this was actually done by Vanguard. And what they looked at was stock and bond correlations because that's what the 60-40 portfolio rule is based on it's basically saying when times are good equities are going to do well when times are bad the and that's the 60 percent, the 40 percent of the bonds and that's going to buttress a down equity market by having treasuries rally and so they have a they're negatively correlated and so in almost any time you know you may not do amazing but you're going to have kind of steady consistent growth However, what they looked at was different periods, post-2000, 1990s, 1970s, 1950s, et cetera. And especially the 1950s and the 1970s, those were elevated inflationary environments. And what it showed was when inflation gets over about 3.5% and definitely 4%, stock and bond correlations rise. And therefore, if you're only in allocated to stocks and bonds, you're going to be in trouble because when things aren't going well for assets in general, like last year, you are going to suffer the brunt of those losses and there's going to be no hedge against it. And so that's why I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of in this new inflationary environment to add a slice And I wouldn't say it's a small slice. 
10, 15, 20% and take your 64 and, and, and augment your 60, 40 portfolio with gold and silver or with precious metals in general. Uh, so that's where I think this is going. Now there are other assets you can add as well. Liquid, you call it liquid alts. Um, that can be a, a general commodity fund, right? That's one way uh, to consider looking at it. Um, so I do think the 60-40 portfolio in general is dead for a while. Not dead, but going to be very different. And it's kind of more like a 60-20-20 portfolio in my mind because I think the 60, the equity, is not really the issue. It's the 40, right? It's the bonds that have duration and that lost a ton of money. TLT is down 50% over the past two years. So what do you think about that, Luke? Do you think, how would you break up the 60-40 portfolio? Yeah, I tend to agree with you given when you think about equities, you think about capital growth, right? And bonds tend to be that piece of your portfolio that maintain the assets that you have. And you mentioned that Van they found is that they built a model and they found that the five most important variables, really the two most important variables, which make up about 80% of what's determining these correlations is the 10-year trailing core inflation and then inflation uncertainty. So when you think about the 1970s, which was a period of stagflation, you think about what caused that. You had oil price shocks, supply price shocks, wage price spirals, people demanding more money. You had loose monetary policy and the Vietnam War. They say history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly certainly rhymes. Mm-hmm. And that sounds to me like a lot of what we're facing today with oil uncertainty, with, with uncertainty in the Middle East, with spiraling deficits. So I think now is as good a time as any to think about how you can further diversify your portfolio. Maybe not some hard, fast 60-20-20 rule, but the important thing here is to be agile and to react to the market environment in front of you. And agile within that 60-40 or 60-20, or right? So instead of just straight long-term treasuries, maybe move those to shorter dated treasuries or to tips, for example, and move the 60 not all into uh, overweight tech stocks like the like the uh, certain the indexes are weighted right now, shifting that part of the portfolio as well. So certainly a lot of change going on within the markets, and that should happen in your portfolio as well. All right, we're heading into a break. We're ready to take your questions now. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Carrero. Give us a call at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Invest Talk. This question's for Justin. It's a follow-up from one of the previous episodes recently uh, where you touched on copper and the industry and how, you know, it may in the future become more difficult to mine some of the copper. I was looking to see if you could revisit talking about MP materials, ticker MP. Um, they're a producer of rare earth minerals. To just kind of compare and contrast how that commodity differs from, you know, copper, talked about lithium before in, in regards to, you know, difficulty mining them, like the abundance and the potential, like how applicable these commodities would be for the electrification uh, in the future and whether you think that MP materials could be a good investment. The stock looks like it's gotten beat up recently. You guys talked about it a while ago. I'm just curious what you guys think about it now compared to some of the other metal commodities. And I'll listen on the podcast. Thanks as always. Bye. All right, looking at MP materials, and this is basically the only North American miner of what are called rare earth minerals. And there's a wide swath of what you they would consider rare earth. Uh, but there's there, I don't I hate the name rare earth because in many instances they're not that rare, uh, and it's more about we haven't really developed a lot of that capacity. Now, to me, this is more of a play on if we do get into some war with China, most of the current rare earths come out of China. They have a good, they have a lot of them, and obviously, it's 
close to the end product in, in a lot of cases or you know the, the manufacturing site. And so most of the time it's just being sourced and, and sent there. Uh, whereas this is more of a company that was doing pretty well. Made a dollar sixty-seven this uh, last year, but Luke, they're only supposed to make thirty cents per share this year. Probably the reason they're in a major downtrend. Yeah, that's exactly the reason they're in a major downtrend. And the reality is, they're actually shipping more rare earth metals this year than they did last year. But the price hmm. they're getting for them is way down. And even at its hmm. current price levels, it's still higher than its five-year average price to sales and price to book value just slightly. So I still yeah. think there's some room for this to run down. And and its business is so dependent on the price that it's getting for what it's selling. So until that turns around, you're not going to see this company turn around. Yeah, and that's most commodity producers. And that's why I always say it's very important to understand the supply dynamics, not just the demand dynamics. A lot of people think of rare earths and they think, oh, there's they're going into green projects. And that's true, right? They're needed for batteries and solar panels and things like that. But A, it's usually a small amount. And B, just because they call them rare earths, that's why I don't like the name, doesn't mean they're necessarily that rare. I talk about copper. Copper, it takes a while to bring new capacity on. Uh, and so you're clearly seeing the trend here. Revenues, last quarter, down 55%. Earnings down 78%. The relative strength here is 14. There is nothing, and I emphasize nothing, about the chart or the trend in earnings that makes this interesting or exciting. So would not buy it. Maybe one day you get some better momentum from the chart and, and earnings, sure. But there's no sign of that at this point. So uh, you just keep it on the shelf. Maybe you monitor it every few months and see how things are developing. But right now they're developing extremely poorly. All right, now our perspective concerns an abridged discussion on U.S. arms trade, transfer sales, and historical production commitments. And Luke, this is a very topical perspective because we are currently sending a lot of arms overseas, more than $100 billion in assistance so far to Ukraine since the Russian invasion early last year. And it's not just to Ukraine. Foreign U.S. military equipment to foreign governments or those sales rose 49% in 2022. And it was to places like uh, Poland, where we sold $6 billion worth of Abrams tanks. Uh, places like Greece, $6.9 billion, billion worth of multi-mission surface combatant ships. And $13.9 billion to Indonesia for F-15 fighter jets. So, this is uh, this certainly is a big, big factor in the earnings for companies like General Dynamics, uh, who makes the Abrams tank, Boeing makes the F-15, Lockheed Martin makes a lot of ships that we that we sell overseas. So this is nothing new because going back to World War II, Luke, we certainly changed our full manufacturing economy to supplement the war effort. And the question now is, are we going to have to do that again? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think something that was said, I think yesterday by Senator Mitch McConnell, which is something I wholeheartedly 
agree with is is when people think about the money that's being spent in the Ukraine, they think about piles of cash going. That's not how it works. So yeah. either we're sending arms that we have or arms that we're about to retire, but we have to replace those for our stockpiles. And how do we replace them? By rebuild, rebuilding the U.S. industrial base mm-hmm. and by manufacturing things in the United States. So really an investment in these wars is also an investment in U.S. industries. Yeah. And a lot of those arms sales, they're actually lend-lease sales. So we're not just giving them. We're, you know, we're, we're, we may not get the money today, but the theory we'll get the money down the line. Um, but that is, like you said, we're going to need to replace them. And our military industrial base has certainly been hollowed out throughout the years. And if you go back to World War II, that's when the industrial base really was built up. In January 1942, a month after Pearl Harbor, FDR ordered the, the establishment of the War Production Board. And the purpose was to convert current factories into manufacturing plants for weapons and military equipment for the fight. And the second goal was to conserve materials like metals, uh, 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 which obviously soldiers need needed, um, and would need, be needed for building guns, tanks, ships, aircrafts, tactical vehicles, etc. And the War Production Board lasted just until the end of World War II, closing down in October 1945. But in the during that time, the Ford factory, which had produced 3 million vehicles in 1941, they started producing things like the B-24 bomber. And so they went from 3 million automobiles produced to only 139 additional cars in 1942. So they basically ceased production of new cars. And they built things like uh, guns, tanks, trucks, aircraft engines, etc. Uh, Alcoa Aluminum Company, they, they actually started making airplanes. And by the end of World War II, this is underappreciated. One of the big reasons why the Allies won the war, half of the world's wartime industrial production was here in the United States. And we would sell them to the UK, Soviet Union, as they were our allies at that time. And the economic impact was massive because unemployment was about 25% and it employed all of those people for the most part and then some. And, and so it really brought us out of, of the depression and it shows you how this can be stimulative. And, and so it, going back to today, when we go and spend money on or, or we send our old uh, equipment overseas, we're as Luke said, having to actually reproduce that. And I think this could spur a resurgence of production here, uh, production capacity here in the United States, along with uh, all the other things that, 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 uh, that we're doing. So uh, it's a really interesting time. Um, and a lot of people will look at what we're doing negatively. And I think, I, I, obviously, I'm, I'm not a fan of the war um, in general. Just it's not, not, not a good thing to have in the world. But it can be uh, stimulative from an economic standpoint once we restock those stockpiles. All right, let's pivot back to the Vestock Voice Bank at 889 chart. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Kevin calling from La Crescenta, California. I wanted to see if you could take a look at a couple of ETFs that I was considering, or actually I have some holdings already. I'm trying to see which one I should be adding more to just because they hold a lot of the companies or stocks that I, I have already. 
but these are focused on companies that have a dividend and they're growing their dividends rather than just having a, a high dividend. But uh, the ETFs are DGRO and the other one is VIG. Uh, I'm sure there's quite a bit of overlap, but in general or overall, which one would you prefer in this current environment? Thank you for answering the question. Thanks. So the first ETF is DGRO, which tracks an index of U.S. stocks that are selected by dividends, dividend growth, and payout ratios, then weighted by dividend dollars, which is an interesting way to weight a portfolio. I don't think I've seen that very often. Dividend dollars, that total amount that they're paying out in dollars, you think? So larger cap companies would be more weighted? Without diving in, I'm not certain exactly how they do it off of this brief summary. Uh, dividend dollars is what it said. So I don't want to give any incorrect information here. But first and foremost, what we always look at in ETFs is what, Justin? Expense ratio. How much are you paying for what you're getting? And in this case, it's eight basis points, which for an iShares fund makes a lot of sense. And secondarily, on on a holistic perspective, we talk about dividends a lot because dividends tend to signal the ability of a company to pay a dividend. So we've seen over time that companies that can pay dividends and maintain those dividends tend to do better than companies that can't and can't maintain those dividends. Looking at this fund, it looks like a, a great fund, low expense ratio. Uh, its AUM is $23 billion. Obviously, a lot of people think it's a good fund as well. Uh, what about the second fund, Justin? Well, this is the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation Fund. This one has been around a long time. It's a little bit cheaper, six basis points versus eight. I, I wouldn't make a decision based on that. It's such a, a small difference. And, uh, you know, I go into is looking at the weightings within particular sectors. So the first one was 16% technology. This is 22% technology, 3% in energy. Uh, and the first one was 7% in energy. And so I'm just looking at this. And that first one, it definitely leans more on the value side, even though it's dividend grower, right? DGRO, the iShares, Gore Dividend Growth ETF. It still is leaning on the value side of the market. And maybe that's that weighting of total dollars actually paid. And if because if you look at the top holdings, it would be Microsoft, Exxon, JP Morgan, Apple, Johnson & Johnson. Those are the top five holdings of the iShares. And similar with VIG, but... You can see there's uh, looks like there's there's less holdings, so it's a little more concentrated and vague. But it, like I said, it's still leaning a little bit more in the blend category and almost into the growth side. So I like the I like the first one, even though it might cost two basis points more. I'm a bigger fan of the way that portfolio is constructed overall. Would you agree with that, Luke? I do agree. All right. Now we're heading into the fourth quarter, and the year has moved by pretty fast. And the holiday season is upon us. And uh, you might be wondering what's going on with the market. We've had this market pullback. Gold's starting to break out again. Yields have clearly broken out. And the big question is, is your portfolio handling these times? Right? Are you chasing dividends? And are you taking on too much duration risk in your portfolio? Are the companies that you hold paying dividends that may be in, in doubt? Right, that could be cut or eliminated because maybe their balance sheet's too stretched. You know, are you allocated for this environment that fits your goals and your risk tolerance levels? It's a big factor here because when liquidity is tighter, the volatility rises. And that can be good for some companies that have good balance sheets, that have steady businesses. 
those are usually few and far between, especially in this market where, you know, for many decades, companies were buying back shares, leveraging up balance sheets, being not caring really about their the cost of their debt because it was so low. Now that's changed. So the big question is, are you prepared? And I encourage you to take advantage of our free portfolio view assessment via telephone or go to meetings. You can send us a message through investtalk.com or give our office a call. Our KPP financial office in Irvine, California is 800 557 And that's where we practice parallel investing, which we invest right alongside our clients. And we operate the same philosophy, which is independent thinking and shared success. So the sooner that you connect with us, the sooner we can help you get your portfolio optimized for this market environment. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Dr. Copper. Luke, I know you love this, this title. Dr. Copper MD. Dr. Copper MD. (laughs) Yes. It's kind of uh, the department of the redundancy department. Um, But yes, Dr. Copper MD, shall we say. And for a lot of people, Dr. Copper has been something you followed to understand the health of the global economy. But now we are in an environment where things are changing. Okay. So this is, um, this is for the long time, uh, everyone looked at a rise in copper prices as an indicator for the future of the economy and vice versa. But now because of basically investment in green energy, that has, that is changing, that is shifting. And, Dr. Copper isn't moving with a lot of the factors that typically uh, will indicate a sell-off or create a sell-off in copper prices. So after the break, we're going to look at this and unpack why you should no longer think of copper prices as Dr. Copper, MD. All right, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal here each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call Invest Talk 888 99Chart. Now, before the break, we talked about how Dr. Copper used to be an early signal for an upswing or downswing in the economy, depending on the price move of copper. But recently, the weakness in manufacturing PMIs globally has not really thrown a wrench in copper prices. The global industrial output is up just 0.5% on the year. That's below the average of 2.6 over the past two decades. And copper prices are up this year. And if you look at, I'm sorry, they're down, they're down 6%. But if you look out to 2025, they're flat. Or if you look at futures markets, 2026, they're actually up. So that's what I was referring to. Um, And then if you look at places that are typically big consumers of copper, 
that is China and their housing market. But investment in property in China is down 9% year over year. But demand for the metal within China is up 10% year over year. And a big reason for that, Luke, is the massive install base goals of the Chinese uh, government and the capacity they're installing of solar panels is double what they did last year. And obviously storing that energy also requires the metal. So this is a big shift in the way the world is really utilizing copper. Yeah, and it's like I always say, or if I haven't before, I will now, you have to look beyond the price. And so you have to take a look at why these market dynamics are occurring, where historically copper price was tied to industrial output, but now it's more related to a shift into a new technology and what that new technology means for output in general is a little complicated. Yeah, and output, as I said, with copper, it takes a while to bring these these uh, these mines on, new supply on. And S&P Global suggests the demand for refined copper will almost double between now and 2035 to 49 million tons, all to support building of batteries, energy transmission, solar cells, transportation, all of this. Uh, and, then, and then the big factor, I think, is our electric cars. The average electric car has over 50 kilograms of copper, more than twice the amount of traditional cars. So the message that you can get from copper movement isn't about the overall economy. It's about the energy transition and how much money is being invested in that space. And as we know, globally, not just here in the U.S., but globally, that continues to pick up. All right, we'll fit in one quick question right now. So let's try. I just been calling today about a stock ticker symbol ENG every scoop. I'm looking at the numbers. It looks good to me as a forward PE that's pretty low. It's around six forward earnings look good for next year and the year after that. They have a small dividend. And um, I think the technicals is trading above the moving averages. Looks like there's a slight pullback. I'm wondering if you think this is a good stock, how the fundamentals are, and if you think now is a good time to get in on this pullback. Let me know. Thank you very much for your help. Bye. So the question was about Everest Group, which engages in the provision of reinsurance and insurance services. Now, Justin, you and I have talked a lot about getting financial exposure. And when people tend to think about financial exposure, they think about banks. And right now, banks tend to be pretty scary, given what's Mm -hmm. been going on with interest rates. So when you like to think about getting financial exposure, one of the things we mentioned before was uh, some of those companies that run financial exchanges. Another one is, is insurance. And taking a look at this company just from a multiple perspective, it looks like it's P to E ratio is below its average. It's price to book value is below its average. And from a comparative perspective, it looks like it's in line with the sector in price to book. And it's, it's EBIT margin is pretty decent. 10.9. That's higher than the average as well. So, so generally this does look like a good company. Yeah. We like the insurance space overall. They tend to benefit from higher interest rates because they can take their premiums and invest them in higher yielding securities. So that's typically good. And this is a reinsurer. So it tends to spread out its risk pretty consistently. And it's a, it's a, 
it's it's profitability return equity is in the mid-teens uh, on average longer term. So we really like that and the balance sheet. Um, it's pulling back here. I, I would love to pick it up kind of around the 375 range. I think that would be a great time to pick it up. All right. That about does it. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero that completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. We have now achieved more than 56.4 million downloads since it all began. And we thank you all for that. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.